Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Emily Parker heads the Chemical and Synthetic Biology Research Group at the Ferrier Research Institute. In 2018, she was awarded a Marsden Grant from the Royal Society Te Aparangi to investigate a family of bioactive compounds found in fungi. The idea, she says, is to create a genetic recipe book for natural medicinal compounds. I headed up to Victoria University of Wellington to meet Emily and some of her students in the lab to find out how the project is going. I often get asked what kind of scientist I am, and I find it quite hard. I was trained as a a chemist, as an organic chemist, but slowly moved over into looking at biological processes. So our lab really does probably very little traditional chemistry now, but then spans well into the molecular biology, the structural biology, understanding enzymes and proteins and how they work, and trying to kind of put biological machinery to work try and understand its mechanics, how we can get it to work and how we can understand kind of the power of genes. So what is it about working out the structure of molecules? Why does that appeal to you? I guess there's a fascination in the detail. I guess my students would say to me, I always think there should be a logical answer to everything, even though many of our results don't appear to have a logical explanation when we first receive them. But it's, it's part of, you know, the interconnectedness of everything, energetic structure, the way our world is, tiny particles, atoms, all of those things, bonds, how things work, I, I guess that fascination in, in terms of that detail, that molecular detail of how things work. And I think we've got such tools now that we aren't just looking at small molecules, we're looking at big molecules that life, nature depends on. So tell me about a particular molecule that you've worked on. A lot of my work traditionally has been on how enzymes do their job. So enzymes are, are nature's catalysts, they're the things that make the chemical reactions that support life possible because they speed them up dramatically. So we get rapid reactions which, which would million times faster than what they would happen without that that catalyst. So we often think of enzymes as living things. You think of them like in your laundry detergent and things like that, going around munching up the dirt. But enzymes, of course, are proteins. They're proteins which are encoded by genes. So they're, what I say, nature's machinery for making things. And we have done quite a lot of work on understanding those enzymes themselves. But the work I've been doing, particularly on this Marsden-funded project, is actually saying, how can we link gene sequence 
to chemical output. So many people will be aware that natural products are produced by microorganisms and plants. Penicillin, natural product, produced by penicillium fungus. We're actually growing penicillium fungus in, in the lab. So that's a natural product. That's a product that the fungus produces to protect itself in its ecological niche. You know. So, And, of course, those compounds, those secondary metabolites or natural products, have an enormous advantage. We've found enormous advantage in those. There's so much diversity in the natural product repertoire that is available. And really the heart of the, our project is really saying, OK, so now, now we have access to so much sequence information, so much genomical sequence information. How do we read that information from gene sequence and how do we read that and know what chemical will come out the other end? At the moment, we can isolate a fungus and isolate the products it produces and work it out. It's very empirical. How can we predict, just from knowing gene sequence, what the outcome is? And so how do we get more data that feeds, feeds that algorithm that helps us understand you know, that really intimate relationship between gene sequence and ultimate chemical output. Those genes encode for some enzymes, those enzymes catalyse some chemistry, and out of that comes these wonderfully diverse natural products that help organisms in their ecological niche. How do we understand that diversity and how it's created by gene sequence? So you mentioned the Marsden Grant, so Mm -hmm. that's allowing you to look at a particular family of compounds that fungi... Yes, and what you can't see is on my wall a massive diagram of chemical structures or all interconnected chemical structures. So I guess what we're asking in, in this project is how are these chemical structures that are all related, all come from the same precursors, starting materials within the cell, how do we get this diverse array of compounds? How does one organism create one subset of these compounds, another create another subset? What's different? And I guess what we're saying is the answer is in gene sequence, the answer is in the coding, and understanding and trying to unlock that secret within gene sequence and say, okay, well, if I'm a gene of the sequence, I will produce an enzyme that does this chemistry, and therefore my chemical output will be this structure. Um, And so that's what we're trying to to relate. Um, So um, there's obviously a lot of evolutionary relationships between different genes and the different organisms that that bear those genes as well and that has some bearing on it but we're very keen to be able to understand how gene sequence relates to the ultimate chemical output of these exquisitely complex natural products that um, microorganisms and plants are so good at producing. So it's trying to understand the ingredients that you could then use to make recipes. It is. It's almost understanding nature's recipes, if you like. Would this give you the potential down the track to go, okay, so if we put these genes together, we might create a new kind of compound? Potentially, we might be able to take gene sequences that allow a particular kind of chemistry, and we can put those together to tailor the chemistry and the output or decorate the compound production to compounds that might have greater value, that might, might be more useful. So how do you go about doing this kind of work? Okay, so uh, uh, there's a whole whole lot of different things involved, but there's gene sequence information which we need. So sometimes we have to seek and get that. There is then piecing together those parts so that we can test 
the function of those things. And then there's growing up the fungus and seeing what it produces. So the small molecule compound characterization. So we grow it up and we extract the natural product pool and analyse that. And that's far more chemical because we're looking at the small molecule structures and the, the things that we produce. So what are the compounds that you're working with? So the compounds that we've been working with are indole diterpenes. Indole diterpenes. Um, so they're made from basic building blocks and get pieced together in a way, make a precursor molecule, and then the pathway branches out all sorts of directions. So what we're interested in, why does it go in different directions? What, what, what controls the different outcomes from the same precursor pool? What controls those different chemical outcomes? And the secret is in the sequence of the proteins that do the chemistry, that are the enzymes that catalyse the chemistry, and, of course, those proteins are encoded by the genes. So that's why I always talk about the holy grail in this field, being able to read chemistry from genes. Now, you've got a group of students working on this in the lab. Can we go and meet them? Yes, absolutely. Hi, I'm Rose, and I'm a PhD student in the Synthetic and Chemical Biology Lab of the Ferrier Research Institute. So when I arrived, you were very busy sitting at the bench working away on things. So what are you actually working on? So basically, I've created some circular pieces of DNA, and what I do is I transform them into fungi or mould, trying to understand how fungi makes certain compounds so that we can produce them on a larger scale. So how do you do that? We start from looking at the genome and doing bioinformatic analysis and through trying to work out and predict what kind of genes are going to do certain things, we can then take that information, we can extract DNA from fungi or we can synthesise that and put that into a different um, host. So you're really looking for potential in surprising places. So not many people would think of fungi as being this treasure chest of potential, but that's really what you're trying to unlock, isn't it? Exactly. Most of the time, fungi doesn't produce certain bioactive compounds in large enough amounts. So we harness the ability of fungi to make those and put them into a, a different species of fungi that's really good at that and by doing that we can essentially unravel how things are made and access certain metabolites that we wouldn't have been able to get before. That's really interesting so your original fungi just produces little quantities just enough for itself and you're trying to get more. Yeah so by understanding how those are made and by putting them into a different host we can actually make them more efficiently and that can lead to being able to do various things like more bioactivity testing or actually being able to produce enough for it to come to the market. What kind of uses might you end up with for these goods? Is it something like a potential pharmaceutical? Potential pharmaceuticals, agrochemicals, so insecticides, anti-cancer drugs, even antivirals, I'm trying to think of other things. So, the, so there's, a, there's yeah. a ton of potential uses. A ton of potential uses, yeah. And how's your work actually going? Is it is it doing what you want it to do? So I've actually completely delineated a 
biosynthetic pathway to a certain class of compounds made by one particular mould. And I've also been able to use those genes to make completely new compounds as well. So you've made these entirely new compounds. What's the next yeah. step? So I'm focused on isolating those and making sure I have enough and then we can send those for bioactivity testing, um, see what other uses they might have. And I'll continue to work on trying to generate even more diverse compounds from that. So what does bioactivity testing involve, Emily? A whole lot of things. I mean, this first the analysis of the chemical structure, but we have collaborators who work in other, other places who do some of the testing for us, and some of it we can get done by commercial entities as well. So I mean, some of it we know because we, it's known on other, other properties of compounds. Other stuff, it's harder to know how wide to cast the the net to look for different um, uses of some of these compounds. So, so that's when you might begin to go, this would make a good antibacterial or this might be a good antiviral. And it's actually quite hard to predict that. It's quite hard to predict that from structure. So we will often do some, look at doing some basic analyses just to give us some clues of which, whether we've got any compounds that have interesting activities. So does this involve looking at things almost gene by gene? Yes, and I like confirmed the function of five different genes sequentially. Each different chemical reaction that those genes led to yeah, required the step before that to work, so I had to do it in a linear fashion. When one of them didn't work, it stopped me for a while, but finally got that working, and then everything was free-flowing, which was really good. But um, I guess one of the cool things was that three of those genes have functions that have never been seen before and one of them I made it work on a completely different compound as well. Does that happen very often or is this such an exciting new area that it does yeah, happen? It's, it's interesting because sometimes we can predict the chemistry, sometimes we can, we, we are almost there that we can predict the chemistry from the sequence and then other times, we, particularly for the genes which we kind of describe almost as decoration genes, we can't predict and we've, we've had one example lately where uh, a very clever gene managed to to do three functions all on its own so we were we were quite surprised by that so unraveling that was was a bit of a surprise and to be honest until we have the inf- more information of of function that we can rate, relate back to that sequence we're not in a position to make those predictions about what the genes will do so some of them we look at them and know others of them we're okay maybe they do this kind of chemistry maybe they do that kind of chemistry but we have to do the experiments to work it out now got someone else to talk to now so can you explain to me who you are please uh hi i'm rudy i'm a phd student at emily parker's synthetic and chemical biology lab uh, here at bow and what are you working on My project is focused on looking at how fungi make these wonderfully complex secondary metabolites, as they're called. So secondary metabolites are just uh, chemicals that aren't necessary for the survival of the fungus, but they may play an important role in the survival of the organism. And this process of going from primary metabolites and converting them into these complex secondary metabolites is a very complicated process and what I'm trying to do is look at this process of generating a complex pool of secondary metabolites from the primary metabolites 
through the lens of two simple enzymes and understanding how these two enzymes take us from the common simple pool of uh, chemicals into this pool of complex chemicals that serve a beneficial function for us. So is this a bit like you've got your... And that's a kitchen analogy again, and it is another cooking analogy. So you've got your basic ingredients, your butter, your flour, your sugar, and different chefs um, can create a deliciously light sponge or a fancy black forest gatto or a, Absolutely. Um, a sticky date pudding. Absolutely, absolutely. And it depends on, do we need more insecticides? Do we need more anti-cancer drugs? And we can't predict what we get. This is where the research is. We don't know whether we're going to get a Christmas cake or a sticky pudding. We, we find out once we've made it. We taste it and we see what, if we like it or not. My project is focused on understanding this process itself, whether mixing the flour with the eggs gives us something that we prefer, like, or does it make the batter sticky, or, or does not adding sugar make us a really good cake? That's kind of what my research is focused on. Specifically, looking at two enzymes. So uh, with the analogy, thinking of maybe the flour and the sugar, how do those two ingredients affect the final product? So have you made good inroads into discovering how these enzymes work, you know, how the secondary metabolites are produced? We know a lot more than we used to know. We've known that we can make this particular uh, cake, but we just haven't known the exact steps that make this cake. Um, And my research has led us to the discovery of the gene sequence that actually delivers this new specific chemistry. What does this information allow you to do now? So the goal of my project is to understand this, but the hope is that this understanding leads us to the ability of actually directing the synthesis in areas where we want the synthesis to go. What I mean by that is some of the compounds that fungi produce are not actually super useful. They're not super relevant. They might not have as strong an anti-cancer effect as we want, but some of them do. The hope is that by understanding how the secondary metabolites are made, we can push the synthesis in the direction that's most beneficial to us. Thanks, Rudy. Rudy Bandela is a PhD student at Victoria University of Wellington. We also heard from PhD student Rose McClellan and from Emily Parker, who is with the Ferrier Research Institute at Victoria University of Wellington. She's also with the Morris Wilkins Centre for Molecular Biodiscovery. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki a papatuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're listening to Our Changing World from RNZ. Now, prompted by Emily's last name, Parker, and following on from last week's story about the Avians project, which is developing machine learning to recognise bird calls, I was reminded of another story about bird calls from the Our Changing World audio archive. Back in 2013, I talked with Kevin Parker about the evolution of tiaki, or North Island saddleback song. Their calls have evolved as birds have been moved from their last remaining stronghold on Hen Island to islands and sanctuaries around the North Island. Here's part of that interview. Song plays a really critical part of of settleback biology. They set up territories, um, and you'll get a male who will defend his territory by singing. 
and his contiguous neighbours will also sing to him. And essentially what they do is a male in a territory will sing one song and his neighbours will reply with the same song. And essentially it's, it's probably an indication that, hey, I'm at home, so don't come and try and take my territory or steal my mate. And it, it's, it's quite a nice way of, of sort of you know, protecting their territories. But Peter Jenkins, who was at University of Auckland back in the 70s, he did some really interesting work looking at how this song was actually learnt. Because birdsong, particularly in the songbirds, is a learnt trait, just like language with, um, with humans. And what Peter actually found is that the birds learn the song from each other. So it's a culturally transmitted trait. They're not necessarily learning it from a relative. They're learning it from their neighbours. And what he also found was that sometimes when a bird learns a song, they make a small mistake. And sometimes those mistakes aren't picked up by other birds, but sometimes they are. And so when they are, you're essentially getting a means by which a new song can emerge within a population. My PhD supervisor, um, Professor Diane Brunton, she thought, well, if this happened in a single population, what happened in all the populations? Because obviously these birds have been moved. And the really interesting thing about saddleback translocations is... The initial translocations in the 60s were from Hen to three different islands. So they went to Whrapuki in 1964, Red Mercury in 1966, and then Kuvia in 68, I think it was. Um, there were no more translocations from Hen, or no more successful translocations, but there were translocations from the translocated populations. There were no birds taken off Red and, until very recently, actually just last year, um, but there were a lot of birds taken from Kuvia, and they were moved to places like Tiri, um, Makoya, Motuora and, and several other islands. There were also birds taken off Whorapuki and moved to Lady Alice. Some of the birds on Lady Alice were also moved to, say, Little Barrier. So what you essentially get is you get these these sequences of translocation where birds might have gone from, say, um, originally on Hen, moved to Kuvia, and from Kuvia to Tiri, and from Tiri to Makoya. And so what you've got there is one, two, three bottlenecks. So there's a lot of stuff in the scientific literature about the effects of bottlenecks on genetics, because obviously if you take a small subsample of birds, most of those early translocations were around 25 to 30 birds, and you take them from a larger population, then you lose some of the genetic diversity. What also happens when you move them is you lose some of the song diversity as well. A nice way to think about this is if you think about having, say, 500 humans, and you move 25 of those humans... Um, you essentially lose the knowledge of the other 475. And the same sort of thing is going on with the birds. You lose some of the songs. So you've got something analogous to, to that sort of loss of genetic diversity with translocation. So they might have lost some bits of their song. They might have invented some other new bits. Yeah, so there's two things that seem to have happened. First off, they, they actually lose whole songs rather than bits of songs and because they lose the tutors and they just lose that knowledge. But what you said is, is exactly right. In the new places... What happens after a translocation is saddleback density is, is, is very, very low. And a really good population, like somewhere like Kuvia, you know, it's, it's barely 200 hectares and there's well over 1,000, probably more like 1,500 saddleback there. So it's very high density. When you translocate to a new island, you might have 200 hectares with initially 30 birds on it. And so what happens is when those birds disperse, sometimes they'll set up territories without neighbours. Now, Traditionally, a saddleback learns its song from its neighbours, but if it hasn't got any neighbours, it hasn't got anybody to learn a song from, and so they make up their own songs. And what seems to have happened there is that there's a bit of a loss of diversity, and that when they make up their own song, they're generally not as interesting as when they learn them from somebody else, because they take what they have, which is the noisy, sort of raucous chatter call, which sounds like a car starting, which saddleback are quite infamous for, and they just try to make it a little more sexy, essentially. And then what happens is... These lonish birds invent this new song, but then as the island population grows, they get neighbours, those neighbours then learn that song. Yeah, that's exactly it. So 
you sort of lose some of the songs through those initial translocations and you get these new songs emerging and as density increases. What's really interesting though is that um, if you actually look at the effect of sequential translocations, so birds that have been through one bottleneck versus two versus three bottlenecks, the diversity of songs reduces with each bottleneck. So those initial translocated populations have quite high diversity. The second level have slightly less and then the third level translocated populations have even less again. And it becomes very interesting because when you go back and, and do experiments by playing songs from different islands to different birds, the birds can actually detect the differences in some cases. So if you go to the islands, um, the third level bottlenecks, so the ones that are most removed from Hen Island, the ancestral population, and play songs from islands earlier in their translocation history, they don't recognise them as well. They don't react to them anywhere near as strongly as they do to their local songs. In contrast, if you do playback experiments with translocated populations early in the translocation sequence, so those that are closest to Hen Island, they seem to recognise a much greater range of songs and react in, in a much broader sort of way. All of this is kind of interesting from a you know evolutionary perspective, but you do sort of wonder, well, you know, does it really matter that much in the long term? The interesting thing with that is that um, saddleback song, well, or bird song in general, is implicated in having a role in speciation. So when song changes in isolated populations, the means by which birds might recognise each other also changes. And so over time, and, and we're talking long periods of time here, they may cease to recognise birds from different islands as potential mates if the songs diverge enough. Now, I don't want to overstate it with North Island Saddleback because, you know, the translocation history only goes back to the 1960s. But we've already seen that occurring in, in those, those outermost reaches of the translocated populations where they are failing to recognise calls, at least in playback experiments. Can we have a listen to a Saddleback call Yeah, for sure. So Saddleback song falls into three broad categories. First off, you've got the chatter call, which is, is pretty loud and raucous, and it's what Saddleback are really most famous for. basically used as a contact call. It can be done very loudly and, and very very quickly or it can be done slowly and, and it's it's basically the, the all purpose call that Saddleback use. You know, somebody's there, I'm here, I'm looking for something that's yeah, used a lot. They then have uh, sexually dimorphic quiet calls and these are beautiful quiet little fluting calls that males and females will do as part of the pair bond essentially. And um, they're very, very beautiful and, and very contrasting compared to the chatter calls. So this one, they're not talking to the neighbours, they're just talking, talking to, each to each other. Talking to each other, yeah, yeah. So male and female saddleback, they, they typically feed together or within quite close proximity to each other year-round. They're highly faithful to each other, um, and they'll, they'll stay in the same territory together for years and years and years. Um, but they actually sleep separately at night. They sleep in separate roosts. They've got their own bedrooms. They have their own bedrooms, yeah, but they get together, you know, clearly for once a year at least for breeding season. But just before they go to bed, they have this quite ritualised... Um, little exchange of quiet calls and they'll, they'll do this through the day it's essentially a component of peer bonding and they'll do it again just before they go to bed at night it's quite beautiful to watch actually they really look after each other now the, uh, the third category of calls are what we call male rhythmical songs these are the calls that um, Peter Jenkins identified back in the 70s and this is a territorial song that a male bird will sing now male rhythmical songs tend to have a very um, stereotypical structure so they'll start off with typically with a couple of introductory chips and then they'll have a series of repeated phrases which a bird will sing over and over and over. (laughs) 
So that's the male rhythmical song, the one that changes through learning errors and through translocation as well, it seems. Where was that one recorded? That one was on Motuora Island, um, or Whale Island, off the Whakatane coastline. And that particular song, there's another song here from Motuora as well, a, a different song again, but it has a, a slightly different sort of rhythm to it. Now, Motuora is a second-level translocated population. Um, those birds came from Kuvia, and the Kuvia birds, of course, came from Hen. Now, the interesting thing about that Motuora call is that that's what might be considered a fairly typical male saddleback call. However, on Hen Island, there are those type of calls, but around a quarter of the calls that I recorded on Hen um, had a structure that's much more like this. And Hen Island, of course, was the original island. Yeah, that's the ancestral population, so that's the survivors. It's really different. It's really, really different, yeah. It's got that real sort of high-pitch element to it. And um, around a quarter of the calls, I mean, those, those type of calls are quite common on Hen. You, you hear them all over the island. And when you go to those first-level translocated populations, so Whatapuki, Kuvia and Red Mercury, you get very similar calls as a component of the of the of the, uh, the song repertoire or songs that incorporate those real high-pitch elements. But then once you move beyond those islands, they really start to drop out. And when you get right out to places like Makoya and Motuihi, which are those third-level translocated populations, those songs are just gone completely. You just don't hear them at all. So they've, they've essentially lost those nice high-pitched songs. Thanks, Kevin. Kevin Parker is a conservation biologist with Parker Conservation, and you can listen to the full interview, which was recorded in 2013, at our website, world. Search for Kevin Parker Tiaki. While you're there, why not sign up for our free weekly email newsletter and check out that enormous audio archive. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Paitopo. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.